Hello and welcome to the Last Wicked Podcast. I'm your host Benny and thank you for tuning in to another episode. This week, my co-host Mike had an opportunity to chat with historian Duncan Stone about his recent book, Different Class, The Untold Story of English Cricket. Now, this book was shortlisted for the Cricket Writers Club Book of the Year 2022 and the Sunday Times Sports Book Awards Cricket Book of the Year 2023. And you will want to keep listening to this episode to get an idea of why it has been making waves in the English cricket circle. In the book, Duncan examines recreational cricket in England, the working class roots of the game through history, and how cricket and class structures have always been intertwined in the country. Fellow historian Meher Bose says about the book, a wonderfully researched book in the great traditions of British iconoclastic writing, the author punctures many cherished myths about the game and is a book all cricket lovers should read to learn where the game has come from and what is still wrong with it. So, there you go. You will find the link to purchase the book listed under this episode's show notes. And while you check it out, listen to this conversation between Mike and Duncan as they discuss the book and parallels to similar issues in other cricketing nations. All right, Duncan, thank you so much for joining The Last Wicket. Uh, firstly, we want to start with yourself. Um, uh, please tell us how um, you got interested in writing about cricket and then also about your book. Uh, thank you very much. Nice to be here. Um, I suppose, like a lot of people, you know, it's family. Um, my granddad was a pretty decent cricketer by all accounts. Um, although he died when I was young, I never really, I don't remember watching him play. Um, but it's pretty clear that he was a pretty decent bat. Uh, and then my uncle and my dad both played. And, you know, I grew up in the UK in the 1970s when we had free-to-air uh, test coverage. Uh, so whatever was on the television, me and my friends would be in the street playing you know, if it was Wimbledon, we'd be playing tennis. If it was the test matches, we'd be playing um, cricket. And if it was the World Cup or the European Championships, then we'd be playing football, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, um, you know, we were all sport mad in those days. Um, and then, obviously, as I moved into adulthood, I, I started playing, you know, proper cricket rather than street cricket. Um, but I had a, an awkward introduction because I came up against... Um, favouritism uh, within the first club I joined um, uh, and I was on the wrong side of that favouritism obviously uh, and then I walked away from cricket for I don't know 10 years until my early mid-20s uh, and then I started playing again and uh, found a club where which was a bit more democratic shall we say <laughs> uh, and from that I I ended up uh, writing about cricket because I, at 32 years of age, I did a master's in the sociology of sport. And um, for my dissertation, uh, I looked at the differences or the reasons behind uh, the differences between Surrey and Yorkshire supporters, which have, if you know anything about English cricket, have very different sort of... Uh, stereotyped identities um, so from that research again after a little break of almost 10 years then I did a PhD in history this time uh, and that ultimately led to uh, the book Different Class which then took another uh, decade so <laughs> I'm making myself sound very old <laughs> <laughs> that's funny um uh, curious when you obviously you've had you know research on on psychology of sport uh, but how did you specifically come to this research topic within cricket um, you know there's there's a lot of and I, I've read about 70% of your book I'm as I mentioned I'm a slow reader so still getting through it uh, but there's a lot of focus on regional rivalries and I feel like that is not something I've seen in a lot of books um, how did you end up focusing on that? Uh, so back in 2001, when I was doing the Masters, um, whether it was the sociology of sport or even sport history, 
uh, it was pretty rudiment, rudimentary stuff. Um, when you refer to identity, it was usually national identities that were being talked about. Uh, and that would be invariably stuff like football hooliganism, uh, which was what my particular department was big on. Um, and then it was halfway through a lecture, I was sort of, you know, daydreaming, like I always do. And it was the supporters of Yorkshire that popped into my head. You know, they chant, Yorkshire, Yorkshire, Yorkshire. And I was saying, well, Surrey supporters, which is where I'm from, Surrey supporters don't do that. So I asked the question to the professor. I said, well, what about regional identities? And, and he said, well, nobody does it. So, you know, that's a red rag to a ball, isn't it? Um, if, you, if you tell someone they can't do it, then, uh, then that, that's almost a challenge, isn't it? So um, <laughs> that's when I did a survey of 200 supporters from Yorkshire and 200 supporters from Surrey and discovered that they attribute completely different meanings to the game. And then, of course, um, when I did the PhD in history, then it was I had the scope to actually look at the historical reasons why. You know, this is the problem with sociology. It's like taking a photograph. Um, you know, it's a snapshot of like the here and now, and it lacks a bit of nuance, whereas history is like the whole movie, um, or at least the prequel. <laughs> um, so that's, so initially it was just, you know, these different regional identities but very quickly it became apparent that these were based on um, cultures uh, with the foundation of which were social class so what I talk about in the book is the development through uh, you know social distinction of the the different regional uh, identities of cricket in the UK but particularly you know, the Midlands and the North as working class, competitive, commercial, and the, again, stereotyped image of the South is that we're all middle class, you know, we play for the love of the game, you know, and it's non-commercial, right. it's amateur, which is bullshit, of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, because that's how the powers that be liked to see themselves, but the game in reality was not like that um, and I argue in the book that the northern um, experience the northern culture is the authentic culture because sport is inherently competitive because if you take competition away it, it ceases to be sport right no I, I found that very interesting that you know and that's I think prevalent today as well. But um, but you know I it it's been prevalent for so many decades that people have said things like oh it's better to lose gracefully than win you know and I'm like well what's what's the point like I, what's the yeah. point of sport then I mean if you're not gonna go there and give your best um, and of course there are boundaries to your to giving your best but uh, mm. but nonetheless you know um, if you're if you're trying to stereotype and wanting things to go a certain way then then yeah it's not sport and that's not even open to people's open uh, people's own nature uh, because not everybody's built the same way not everybody's um, motivated the same way mm. um, so yeah that when I started reading I think it was in the second chapter maybe in, in your book. Um, I read that. I was like, wow, this is not something, you know, the spirit of cricket or, you know, all of that is I uh, sometimes we feel it's a recent trend, but uh, that or some form of that has been happening for for a very long time, clearly. Oh, yes, uh, definitely. And it's and it, again, as I say, it's it's how it was used by the powers that be as a way of making them look good when compared to. Indians or invariably Australians who were like uber right. competitive because they were playing the game properly and, <laughs> and you know events spilled over during the Lord's test didn't it uh, uh, in the last ashes you know when you yeah. had the members in the long room you know almost physically assaulting the Australians for doing something that's perfectly within <laughs> the rules the, the laws, and yeah. we see it with the man pads 
and we see it with the mancad every all the time we're not allowed to call it the mancad now but uh, you know with a with a bowler's end run out um yeah. you know that that's just a way of the the english generally trying to make themselves feel superior because we don't do that sort of stuff <laughs> yeah I'm curious that um, when you started to look at this subject and, and then, you know, obviously you started with regional identities that led to this bigger topic of how cricket has been led over the years. Did you see any parallels with any other sport? Because again, I'm not, I really just follow cricket in a lot of depth, but what I've always heard is, you know, football is the people sport, whether it's in South America in, in Europe, you know, everywhere, that's that's the general belief that, you know, it's a people's sport. Uh, kids just pick up a ball, kick it in the, in the streets and in the backyard and all of that. Um, but cricket is really the only game which, you know, markets itself as the gentleman's game or, you know, that, that sort of stuff. And to be honest, some of that still sticks with it. Um, are there any other sports that came to your attention which are similar? Well, yeah, I mean, cricket kind of got, you know, the first punch in, if you like. But, um, I mean, rugby was, if you go back far enough, uh, a singular sport. Uh, but because of the same issues that I describe at a local level in the south of England, where essentially the middle classes banned competition so that they didn't have to rub shoulders uh, on the field of play, uh, with their working class neighbours. Uh, the same thing happened essentially within rugby uh, and the very sort of public school minded um, rugby football union refused working class men, again, predominantly in the north of England, what they called broken time payments. Uh, this wasn't actually professionalism. This was just compensation for losing a shift down the mine. The same as the amateur cricketers um, claiming expenses, right. basically. Uh, but it came to such a head that rugby split into two discrete sports. You know, the amateur, uh, or what used to be amateur rugby union, and the professional uh, rugby league. Uh, so rugby union uh, has got, to use the Australian term, uh, tickets on itself. You know, they what, how do they describe it in comparison to football? Um, is it a game for thugs played by gentlemen or something uh, and football's you know supposedly a game for gentlemen but played by thugs that's how they like to <laughs> so rugby union um, is very much uh, like cricket in that regard but they haven't quite sort of fetishized uh, the whole gentlemanly uh, and they and they certainly don't have this uh, notion of a spirit of rugby uh, certainly <laughs> if they do they haven't committed it to paper which is exactly what you know cricket has done and I think right. it, it's really unhelpful to the game to you know hold itself up to a set of standards that in in the real world uh, rarely get lived up to you know you're just right. you are making a rod for your own back uh, with that so I would personally do away with uh, the spirit of cricket because I don't think it it helps the game in terms of popular appeal yep no makes makes a lot of sense I'm, I'm definitely on the same side of that debate um, you mentioned schools in terms of rugby um, I know even in cricket they've played you know an important role um, as far back as 1805 you mentioned how there were inter-school competitions and there was one that, that was even at Lords, and that's still going on. Mm -hmm. they, uh, some uproar over that recently where MCC decided against it and then switched their decision. Um, I guess the influence of private schools is something that I want to ask you about because that's um, probably a more recent phenomenon. So obviously schools played a part all the way back, you know, more than 100 years back. But where did private schools and their influence start um and you know now i think we've know that about 40 percent of english cricketers come from private schools if i'm uh, roughly about 40 percent if i remember right um yeah. so where did that start changing or has that always been the case and it started expanding to public schools um just trying to see how that panned out yeah i mean obviously 
a, pu a public school in the UK is a private fee-paying school, a very exclusive uh, institutions. Um, as far as cricket is concerned and rugby union, as I mentioned, the RFU um, probably still is, you know, populated with, it was formed by uh, and its culture and modus operandi were shaped by ex-public school boys. So once the counties started being formed, county cricket clubs uh, or county rugby uh, teams, you know, they were run in the interests of, you know, privately educated men, uh, which is why the MCC would throw its doors open to Eton and Harrow from the early 19th century to play their games um, and still do today. Um, so the, the public school influence has always been there. I mean, that's why English cricket has the culture and historical image that it does. It's because, you know, the game's organisation, it's, you know, it's competitive structure and obviously it's social history have been written by and about white privately educated men. So they've, you know, they've set the tone. Um, what's happened in more recent decades uh, is that the uh, the steps that were made to sort of democratise all sport in the UK after the Second World War have been slowly clawed back. So, um, you know, since 2010, you know, we've been living through an extended period of austerity in the UK. Uh, but long before that, um, successive governments were selling off state school playing fields which means that working class kids, um, even before, uh, you know, test cricket was taken off free to air television, you know, the opportunities for working class kids to actually play the game have been steadily diminishing. And you can't even do street cricket now because, you know, the world's very different. You know, when I grew up uh, in Bryanston Grove, you know, um, there weren't any cars. You know, we could play all day in the street and there wouldn't there wouldn't be cars. But you go back to Bryanston Grove now and all the houses have driveways and yet there are still cars parked all up and down on the pavement. So the car has essentially taken over. School playing fields have been sold or lost. Um, Industrialised workplace sport because um, we've gone through a a long period of deindustrialization and obviously modern day working culture you know employers are not interested in giving you a day off to play cricket for the firm uh, again i'm you know i was lucky enough to experience that so there's a whole succession of things that have made working class participation in cricket increasingly difficult and this has only meant that the likelihood of um, privately educated um, players dominating, uh, it's only made it more likely. So as much as the county clubs and the ECB are at fault, it's not entirely their fault because the context in which cricket operates in this country now is completely different. It's, it's been literally turned inside out over the last 40 years. Um, so the world that I grew up in does not exist anymore. Not that I was ever good enough <laughs> to play <laughs> county cricket. <laughs> yeah, no, but, but it's still, you know, it's still a shame for all the people, all the young kids interested and, in, you know, uh, not being able to afford their way into um, the, the system uh, just you know playing sport and and what's un what's interesting is this is not a problem that's unique to England um, in South Africa there's research which shows that majority of their cricket captains also come from private schools mm -hmm. and and the funding all of that you know kind of similar to you mentioned the grounds but similarly the funding majority goes to uh, private wealthy schools which already have you know a lot of money so so it's, it's it's interesting that this is not a unique phenomenon to uh, to England, but 
definitely seems like something that's been increasing more and more in the last few decades. In the history of the game, um, and your book is obviously focused on English cricket, but there's a lot of self-interest in terms of the people running the game. Um, what I feel is common is in Sri Lanka, for example, they have all these different clubs and you know uh, smaller groups to which run the game, and they've been trying not to give away the power since the 90s, um, even though there's been you know a lot of feedback that the quality of the game is not great when you have so many teams and and for such a small country. Uh, the BCCI is similar. There's you know a lot of self-interest, the money they generate, they want to keep in their pocket rather than grow the game. Um, it, it seems like a cricket problem to me. Is, is it, is it, is, do you think that's the case or is there something more unique about English cricket? I think, um, I think over time uh, the self-interests have changed. Uh, I mean, if you go back to the beginning of the book, you know, what I'm describing there is basically class-based self-interests where you know the middle and upper classes in England just want the game for themselves and you know regrettably they were uh, all too successful uh, in that because they actively sought to make the game less popular uh, and that had a lot to do with the way the game was organised you know county cricket in England was never especially competitive and when you had a singular division um, you know everybody was very comfortable we've had obviously a two division championship uh, for a few decades now um, but if you compare the way cricket has been run in relation to football where they have this uh, meritocratic four division pyramid essentially uh, that is the main reason why football is the people's game it's because any club, you know, even the club I helped to run, heaven forbid if we were good enough and managed to find a stadium we could borrow, there would be nothing to stop us pursuing, um, you know, professional football. You know, we could, if we had some millionaire backer, <laughs> climb the league system and, you know, like Brighton or Luton Town, end up in the Premier League. This cannot happen in cricket. Um, but um, the, the self-interests that you're referring to in the modern context are, yes, it's money. Uh, money and power. Um, the unfortunate thing is, you know, the results are the same. Um, English cricket, when it was run in the interests of 7% of the population, you know, white, privately educated men, was unsustainable and that's why the game had got smaller and smaller in terms of popular appeal. Now whether it's the ECB, whether it's the BCCI or the ICC, um, the hoarding of financial resources by a tiny minority or taking um, you know, test match cricket off free-to-air television certainly in the UK is equally unsustainable. Um, you, you, if you do not feed the roots, then, you know, the fruit that they're currently enjoying is is soon going to wither and die. Uh, and then that will be the end of it. Um, so I think there's a lot... But I think this reflects modern uh, political, uh, economic discourse over the last 40 years. Um if you're looking at, you know, the crumbling infrastructure in the UK at the moment, you know, we've currently got a scandal that a lot of our state schools are in danger of collapse uh, and school children are being told the week before the new term to not come to school. Um, this is all because of short term planning. You know, austerity is essentially a short term measure uh, designed, you know, well, not quite sure what it was designed for, um, but the end result of this short-termism, you know, everything's about the next um, 
accounts submission and how much profit we're going to make. You know, the privatisation of water. We now have polluted rivers in 98% of the country. Um, yeah, it's not sustainable. Ultimately, you know, if cricket uh, is going to survive, it, you know, the people at the top have to realise that, you know, the game is bigger than them. And as much as they're in positions of uh, great power, um, they should, you know, learn that, um, you know, they're, 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 cu they're custodians of the game and there are generations to come that will not thank them if they continue on their current path. You know, we're looking at, you know, uh, the shrinking uh, of, you know, the World Cups, you know, the associate nations not being invited. That's such a short-term decision, it's ridiculous. How are we supposed to grow the game when essentially only three countries matter? And even then, only one really matters. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think, there's a whole range of short-term uh, greed that is afflicting cricket globally. But I think it's also, it's, it's just bubbling under the surface in football. You know, we've had a couple of attempts at breakaway leagues. You know, I think they were trying to do the Europa League, Super League, or whatever it was, you know, when Chelsea, Tottenham, right. you know, Arsenal, and all Liverpool, Man United all tried breaking away with, Real Madrid and AC Milan without telling anyone uh, but mercifully um, fan power uh, intervened uh, and they and they blinked golf on the other hand has totally rolled over and asked to be tickled on the tummy uh, by the Saudis right <laughs> um, I mean golf's an individual sport outside of the Ryder Cup so I don't really think it you know, who cares? It's golf. Uh, <laughs> um, but team sports, where you have international teams, that they're far more meaningful, frankly, and more important. Uh, so I do, I do feel there does need to be some kind of reset in terms of, you know, the powers that be and the money men need to actually understand that, you know, their personal aggrandizement uh, should always come second to the sport and making it accessible uh, and as interesting to as many people as possible. And if you do that, it's a virtuous circle. They'll get the money anyway. Right. Yeah. But it's this short-term sort of neoliberal mentality where it's all about the next, you know, bonus or, uh, you know, d profit right. dividend. Uh, rather than growing the game over a long period, having a long-term plan to grow the game. You know, in terms of British politics, you know, one of my old professors a long time ago said, you know, we're just living through five-year dictatorships. It's one five-year dictatorship after another. Um, <laughs> and, and I think that's truer now than it's probably when he said it. Uh, and sport can't afford that. Sport shouldn't be run in the same way. You know, it's a bit like the NHS. By its very nature, it should be almost a bottomless pit. And, you know, it's it's the broader good that should be taking precedent, not the interests of uh, a few CEOs. Yeah, no, I, that's that's definitely a problem in the US as well, where. Um, oh, we're kind of going off topic, but we love tangents, so I'll go anyways. Uh, in, in the U.S., it's similar where um, CEOs get get paid based on the stock prices and and not based on you know how many jobs they added, how how forward they took the company, none of that. So it's kind of similar. It's self interest, uh, making sure you know they they scratch the people's back, the the shareholders back, and get 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 big bonuses even if that means thousands of people get laid off even if that means the company didn't actually make any significant you know technological or any sort of progress um mm. but coming back to coming back to cricket so the accessibility issue is is really interesting because um there's a theory on uh in cricket in general where 
you know, because it requires a ground, it requires a pitch, it requires a bat, all this equipment, it's a harder sport to get into. Somehow, though, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, um, all these countries, Australia to some extent, because, you know, even there it's known as a backyard sport, um, have managed to create this passion for cricket. Um, but it's probably not the same in England, where it's clearly the second most important sport after soccer. So obviously, things that you mentioned, you know, the, the structured leagues, um, the ability to democratically join a league and if with the right talent all of that get into even the top tier all of that obviously plays a factor but what do you think of that aspect of it just the challenges around affording cricket and how they've played a part i think affording cricket i think ironically so when i first started playing uh you know cricket was probably more expensive uh so what we had at Fairlands, my first, you know, the club, which was a lot more meritocratic, the one where I actually started enjoying cricket. Um, we had a team bag. There would be one where well, we would have two, possibly three bats. Nobody owned their own bat. Nobody owned their own pads. We would have our whites and, that, and you know, a pair of trainers, and that would be it we would all share and and one of the one of the bats was awful we we called it the plank <laughs> it, it had no middle at all um so you know we we played very much on a shoestring um and we were playing on just council parks you know it was, it was very it was proper grassroots if you know what i mean today we've uh, i suppose globalization and you know manufacturing you know, it's like everything, like technology, when it first comes out, it's really expensive. And then when everybody, you know, invariably the Chinese start making it, then the cost tumbles. Uh, and, and now, you know, everybody has their own kit because it's not as onerously expensive as it used to be. Uh, you know, when I was in my late teens, early 20s, uh, I couldn't afford um, my own equipment. Obviously, you'd have your own box. <laughs> you wouldn't want to share them. <laughs> um, but other than that, no, I, I actually would argue that uh, cricket is probably more affordable in terms of owning your own equipment today than it was when I started. Um, Interesting. But yeah, the, the team bag... Um, yeah, I'm not sure how many clubs would operate in that way. Maybe a few, you know, inner city clubs in the UK might still, you know, share their equipment. Um, but generally, in the, in the cricket I've played in recent times, you know, everybody turns up with their own bat. I, I've, I've never... What I used to rely on was, like, hand-me-downs. Uh, I mean, cricketers are a bit like cyclists. I think they're, they... They like everything new and shiny and, and they're always updating, you know, whether it's their gear, gear set or, you know, their bat. So there's always a few hand-me-downs around, you know, so you can either get given or, you know, just give someone, you know, 50 quid for their old bat, you know, uh, rather than buying a 300 quid bat new yourself. Um, so I think, I, I think, I think it's uh, cheaper than it was. Interesting. I, I had not um, thought of that, uh, but that's, that's really interesting. Um, I do want to talk a, about some of the more recent developments in English cricket. And I know this is uh, probably not from your book as well, but nonetheless, you know, there's been a lot of talk about racism. Obviously, the Azim Rafiq episode uh, where he disclosed some really disturbing, um, you know, disturbing incidences that happened with him. And there were others who stood up and said, that's you know that's similar things have happened with them as well um and yet you see um so it's interesting because there's the recent set of players such as Owen Morgan Joe Root who have generally said very progressive things um i remember this test match where Joe Root tells Shannon Gabriel not to use gay as a uh, derog derogatory term 
Um, mm-hmm. After, I believe, the 2019 World Cup win, Owen Morgan was asked if he thought the Lord was with them. And he replied by saying, even Allah was with us. And, you know, so you see all these very progressive things and you feel good about, you know, the direction it's going. But then you see something like Ian Botham, you know, one of the legends of English cricket, completely deny racism. They, you know, there was ne- never any racism in, in any dressing room he was part of. Mm-hmm. What does that say about how English cricket has dealt with all these uh, things that have come out in the open um, and also just the, the society's grasp on, on these topics? Yeah, Ooh, that's a big question, isn't it? Um, I think in terms of cricket, I think there's still uh, an omerta, another cycling term, you know, where you just do not talk about certain things, you know, in cycling mm-hmm. it's doping. Um, <laughs> in cricket, you just don't talk about racism. You don't talk about elitism or sexism um, because it's a very, you know, it's been around for a couple of hundred years now and it's a very strong institution that they've got there and you know certain journalists or certain players as as you say will occasionally you know pipe up with something progressive but it never lasts um so this icec report which came out eventually um is really uh cricket in this country's last chance. You know, Mike Marcuse wrote Anyone But England in almost 30, it'd be 30 years next year since that was published. And everything that he said at the time was denied. And yet, here we are, 30 years later, the ICEC and my book uh, have, you know, proven him correct you know, he is the right side of history. Uh, and yet we still have people like Botham, like even MPs who are on the Cricket Select Committee, denying the evidence of over 4,000 people. <laughs> you know, this is their lived experience. Uh, and yet the people like Botham, who've had a very comfortable, you know, he's the alpha male in one of the most alpha-ish uh, you know, a professional sports changing room, and he is the alpha male. Well, of course, he never saw anything. You know, he was probably the person dishing it out, <laughs> racism or otherwise. Um, right. So it's. I think there's far too many people that we might describe as old school uh, in terms of <laughs> their the school that they went to or their attitudes. Uh, to these issues Um, and cricket really needs a a bit of a clear out Um, but the the difficulty is is that a lot of the journalists who write about the game are either from the same background or have to suffer this omerta where you can't put your head above the parapet too often because then you're not going to get the interviews you're not going to get you know it's like Alex Ferguson used to ban journalists from Man United press conferences because they were asking awkward questions. Now, you can't do your job if you can't turn up to the press conference. So there's a lot of, um, well, it's not even soft power, is it? I mean, it's overt power plays uh, being employed here. Um, So I think the ECB, uh, and I have been in touch with a few people at the top end recently, uh, and I've I've just tried to get across to them that you know cricket doesn't have another thirty years to sort itself out because I mean you said earlier that you know cricket is second to football cricket's nowhere near the top five sports in this country uh, and it was and if it wasn't for the British South Asian population it would be a minority sport. I think uh, there was a a government survey on sporting participation amongst adults. And I think cricket was 11th in terms of of adult participation. So cricket is already dying. 
a death of a thousand cuts. The ICEC report and figures like that should be the wake-up call that cricket administrators needed. <laughs> they shouldn't have needed it. You know, these are these are well-known, uh, long-standing problems. Uh, but if they don't do anything about it this time, then I, I, I really don't see a long-term future uh, for cricket as as an authentically popular national sport because it simply doesn't it just doesn't appeal to people uh, the way the game is marketed to the public you know the England men's team coming out to the field to uh, Jerusalem this is one of my pet hates you know I'm a white middle-aged man from Surrey and that isn't my England you know and I'm sure it's not and I keep using this analogy, you know, a 15-year-old South Asian lad from Bradford, well, I doubt it's his England either, you know. So why would you even support England? They're not speaking to me, and they're certainly not speaking to that lad in Bradford. So the whole way, the whole way that cricket in England is presented needs reform because it is inherently white, apart from anything else. It's not inclusive. Uh, so, But the good thing about this, you know, for the ECB is to change that won't cost them a penny. Just drop it. It's an invented tradition anyway. No England team came out to Jerusalem before 2003. So we probably can't stop the Barmy Army singing the bloody thing, but... Um, at least we can not have official um, mar using that as some sort of marketing tool because I think it only um, alienates um, what will soon be the majority of cricket followers and players in this country. I think. Yeah, and it's it's um, the the challenge with it is you know obviously I, I had not paid attention to. Um, to the Jerusalem song, actually, so that's something that's new for me as well. Well, it, well, uh, it's very, it's very subtle, you know. Yeah. People just, people just accept it, and you know, mm -hmm. if you remind people that you know, it never happened before two thousand and three, they're like, oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> um, so this is, this is, it's very insidious um, uh, how this sort of idealized notion of Englishness is you know, forced upon cricket Propagated. followers. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yep. Um, the, the, I mean, obviously there's a lot of work to be done, right? So there's um, all these reports that are coming out which talk about um, the issues, the discrimination um, um, that people have faced. Um, uh, there have been ex-players who've come out, as we mentioned, um, and I heard, you know, there are actions that are being taken. So, for example, the South Asian action plan was one that I heard about. Um, I believe there's a couple of uh, bodies that work as advisors to the ECB as well. Um, what are these ventures doing? Have you seen any impact that they've been able to create? Or um, are they not able to really help that situation to the extent that uh, they would like? I think... I mean, the inherent problem with the South Asian Action Plan is is that it's race-based. You know, it, it only targets one community. Um, you know, what about the black British population? What about white working-class kids? Don't they deserve a little bit of support as well? I mean, I'm all personally, I'm all for uh, positive discrimination, but if you're going to do it, you know do it beyond more than one community. Uh, but the sad fact of the matter is, uh, I personally believe that the South Asian Action Plan was introduced for the wrong reasons. I, I, I think it's a way for the ECB to exploit the British South Asian community. Uh, because what they're doing, they've created a square peg for a round hole, basically. So as much as they're throwing a little bit of money at you know, this community and they're fitting artificial wickets and a few grass wickets uh, in inner city areas. 
um, they're not creating a system where those South Asian clubs can actually join the ECB's recreational mainstream. They're still kept out. That is what they should be looking at. You know, so in the book I talk about the Waltham uh, Cricket Club, which is run by Iftikhar uh, Mahmood. Uh, Ifti's a bit of a hero of mine. Uh, and he's been fighting essentially a losing battle against, you know, the Essex uh, Cricket Board and the ECB for, oh, crikey, getting on for 25 years now. He, he, his team are an incredibly talented bunch of cricketers, but they are not allowed to compete in the ECB's mainstream. So you can have as many South Asian action plans as you like, but unless it actually creates a scenario where Waltham can join the Essex Senior League and play official Saturday ECB-approved cricket, then you're just wasting your time. Um, you know, it's it's where the meritocratic bit falls down, isn't it? You know, they're clearly good enough to play within the mainstream, but because of their facilities, you know, this is another institutionalised excuse, because their facilities aren't up to scratch, well, you know, it doesn't matter how good they are. They could have 11... They could be they could be essentially, you know, the Bangladesh first eleven. They're not getting in. <laughs> right. Um so cricket's got a lot of problems where it's asking for people to jump through hoops backwards over issues or matters that really don't have too much to do with the actual game. Uh, you know, and as I discussed with Jared Kimber. You know, in grade cricket, up to a certain level, you know, artificial wickets are fine. Uh, or you can have hybrid or um, matting wickets. And then, obviously, if you're playing A grade or B grade, then, yeah, you're going to be on grass. But up to that point, it's not a problem. And it shouldn't be a problem here either. Um, so that's something I'd like them to look at and just be a bit more relaxed about... Um, some of these onerous uh, conditions that they place on people because it's because it's not helpful you know the ECB have a you know a marketing phrase you know get the game on well yeah get the game on you know allow <laughs> allow people to use artificial wickets if that's what all they have and as yeah. they progress then maybe they'll get to use a grass um, uh, wicket. So, right. yeah, I think there's, I think there's, South Asian Action Plan, nice idea, but introduced for the wrong reasons, and ultimately it's not solving what the biggest problem is, which is inclusion. Yeah. Participation is not a problem within the South Asian community. It's inclusion that's the problem. Right. So they got everything upside down as usual. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. The pathway to your to your point, the pathway to being part of the English county system that seems to be still a big roadblock, um, which is which is unfortunate. And yeah, it's it's interesting. They've found the gatekeepers have found so many little things that they can use as oh, you're not in, and it's it's frustrating. Um, and I think. As you were saying that, I was thinking about, you know, comparing it to cricket in Asia. One of the things about cricket in Asia is because it's been not as organized, that's allowed the game to grow, you know, to your point, um, wherever it needed to go. So uh, I remember growing up playing for school teams, which would have only a half a mat. So we would have not even a full mat uh, and we would play one end only because that's the only end the ball can pitch. Um, mm. because those were the conditions we had and there was no issue. We had leagues where games would happen on those and I had never thought of, you know, that being uh, a stopper for a particular league. Um, yeah. Obviously, I'm not, you know, the Ranji Trophy happens there, but but nonetheless, if kids play and get, you know, start, uh, have more access to such grounds and then eventually if they're good enough, they can 
graduate to other better grounds, actual grass fields, um, it's it's still going to be better for cricket overall. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's the same for both sides, <laughs> um, and you know, you know, get the game on. You know, we all right. love cricket, whether it's watching or playing, um, and. I think I think we've been spoiled in the UK <coughs> because we have this, you know, literary image of cricket. You know, the village green and everything's all beautiful and rural, and you know, there's no smoke. There's never any smoke anywhere. Uh, <laughs> but the vast majority of cricket played would have been, you know, in the cities. But, um, you know, because we have this fetishised image of uh, cricket in England, you know, it's almost beneath cricket administrators or, or even certain cricketers to even consider using an artificial wicket. Yeah. You know, so the whole image and history of cricket affects real-world behaviour today. And I think, you know, it's, this is why I hope my book is is a riposte to that orthodox history because most of that history is nonsense. Um, you know, it, it's a fairy tale um, and not how the overwhelming majority of cricketers experienced and played the game. So, you know, as usual, we need more people's history of whatever, you know, whether it's cricket or anything else, you know. Right. Um, the history of something as experienced by the majority of people should be the orthodoxy and not this sort of top-down uh, elitism. Yeah. That, because ultimately it does the game or society no good in the, lo in the long term. Absolutely. No, it, it's definitely been an eye-opening book for me, um, even though you know I feel like I had an understanding of the last few decades and the elitism, the, the racism, all of all those aspects, just because of following cricket for the last 20 years. But the fact that, you know, even then I had bought into the whole romanticization of village cricket and, oh, yeah, these beautiful sceneries where they play and the, the beautiful grounds. And I was like, oh, wow, I would love to do that someday. And I used to think that as well. And obviously now I connect all the dots as, as I've been reading the book. So, um, yeah, to all the listeners, definitely uh, highly recommend Duncan's book. It's been a really refreshing read, um, especially for someone like me who's focused usually in the last 50 years of cricket. It's been really good to go all the way back to the start and you know understand how things unfolded and some of the uh, unintended and intended consequences of decisions taken by people back then, uh, yeah. people at the top. So, Duncan, with that, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Um, we really hope we'll, you'll come back to talk more about uh, cricket as, uh, and, uh, you know, any other research topics that come to your mind. Lovely job. Thanks for having me.